You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Ellie Anderson. Ellie is currently a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at Pomona College, and she will be joining the department as an assistant professor this coming fall. Her research interests are in continental philosophy, feminist philosophy, and social philosophy. She has written on such topics as shame, self-love, and knowledge, and how such figures as Bavor, Sartre, and Derrida have engaged these issues. In this episode, we talk about the continental analytic divide, methodology, marginalization in academia, and so much more. Hello, Ellie. And welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Maisha. It's great to be here. And so good to, to talk with you. I know that we have been planning to do this for a few months, and so I'm so happy that we finally get to have <laughs> this, this conversation. So let, let's, begin, let's, let's begin our dialogue with this question. How did you get interested in philosophy? So I grew up in Los Angeles, and my parents were total book lovers, but they had both dropped out of college to move to Hollywood. And so my mom was obsessed with psychology books and had a particular interest in spirituality too, a lot of Christian mysticism. And my dad favored classic literature like Virginia Woolf and Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. So I think I grew up around a lot of books and it was natural that I would develop an interest in that, even though I didn't come from any sort of academic background. And I guess, yeah, philosophy just stood out to me on the the bookshelves of, you know, the Barnes and Noble and the secondhand bookstores in the area. So I remember loving Seneca as a teenager. And then I got super into Descartes. Um, yeah, I was pretty nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you were into Descartes in, in, in high school, then yeah, you fit that definition. So let me ask you this. Did, you, did your parents have any philosophy books or did you have to go to the bookstore in order to, to, to read some? I had to go to the bookstore. They had some theology books. We we grew up in this sort of funny, like liberal Christian type of community in LA in with, you know, a church in Hollywood. So I think there was always some kind of strange juxtaposition there. But yeah, I would just go to the secondhand bookstore that, that was near the church and just check out all of these uh, books. And then eventually that led me to a lot of questioning that, you know, manifested in no longer being religious, but having a, a lifelong passion for these questions and really desiring a community of peers that I could share that with. Was it philosophy of religion that you read that kind of had an impact? Was it just the critical thinking itself that had an impact? Was it, was it like, what kind of philosophy like stood out to you that made you fall in love? I think it was philosophy that seemed to be self-helpy. I see. <laughs> so, so I was interested in theological questions for quite some time as a teenager and as a young adult, but it was mostly a sort of philosophy as therapy, which I think is what initially drew me to folks like Seneca and the other Stoics, because I, I wanted to improve and learn about myself, but I found that a lot of wisdom was to be gleaned from folks who had lived a long time ago. And those turned out to be philosophers. 
I mean, I've never told anyone this, but that's something that stood out to me about Socrates. (laughs) (laughs) And I never really, really put it into these words as far as like, oh, what drew me to Socrates? Oh, because he was kind of self-helpy in some ways. (laughs) Yeah, I can totally, I can totally relate. I can totally relate. So is it proper for me to call you, because we're going to get into this, is it proper for me to call you a continental philosopher? Yes. Okay, okay. So let's kind of talk about that, because you self-identify as a continental philosopher. I self-identify as an analytic philosopher. And according to the word on the street, we got some beef, right? So let's (laughs) let's kind of talk about this, quote unquote, divide. And let's, let's also talk about kind of what you call the marginalization of continental philosophy. And what I, what I hope that this conversation would illuminate for, for lots of folks is that uh, for those who are in philosophy, they will have kind of much more clarity or at least question some things that we're taking for granted as far as what these two traditions are about. And I, and I also believe that what we talk about today will also have some, some implications, some application to even those outside of philosophy. So let's, let's first begin with this question. In the mid-20th century, we kind of see these two traditions given these particular names. So in the mid 20th century, what did philosophers take themselves to mean by continental philosophy and analytic philosophy? Because it seems as if the meaning then was not necessarily what we uh, describe or mean when we refer to those terms or those traditions today. So what did they originally yeah. mean by these, these two terms? Yeah, so... I'll start with analytic philosophers. As I understand it, analytic philosophers during that period after World War II took themselves to be interested in logical precision and uh, kind of objectivity, often modeled after mathematics and the natural sciences. This sometimes meant limiting truth to the truth of statements. And this obviously delimits the scope of philosophy in important ways, including distinguishing philosophy from the history of philosophy, which some saw as mostly a mere history of mistakes. And in addition to that, I would say that this move towards sort of defining analytic philosophy as such involved distinguishing this type of philosophy from the schools of phenomenology and existentialism that had begun to take root in Europe, especially in Germany and France. So phenomenology and existentialism are these two traditions that emerge over the course of the first half of the 20th century, and which often take very seriously the authority of first-person experience. So they're often about a sort of perspectival or subjective nature of truth, and a kind of truth that involves the whole body and organism in the environment, rather than a kind of truth that is limited to statements. So analytic philosophers had rejected this, uh, these sort of tendencies that they saw there, And a component of this, which is a bit more political, is the the coincidence of this movement with the McCarthy era in the late 1940s and the 1950s. And John McCumber has written about this in his book, Time in the Ditch. He notes that philosophy was hit especially hard by suspicions about the disloyalty of higher education to American principles. And this led to philosophy retreating from social and political issues, Hmm. as well as philosophy wanting to dissociate itself from continental Europe. And philosophers in this way, they, they were safer from persecution when they limited their inquiries to the logical validity of statements and left side engagement with the messy social and political issues of the concrete world. So I would say then that the analytic continental distinction was invented by analytic philosophers, and that's pretty well established in, you know, histories of this period. 
And I think one way to see this as well is in the asymmetry of the two terms. So analytic is a methodological term and continental is a geographical term. It's a really weird term. So technically it refers to the European continent, but in and of itself, it's pretty meaningless because especially today, a lot of continental philosophy is happening in the English speaking world. And even when it's not, I mean, there's a huge tradition right now um, of Latin American continental philosophy, continental philosophy has a lot of overlaps with Africana and Asian philosophy. So it's a, it's a very weird term. Okay. So today, right. So there are two different ways that people tend to make a distinction between the two traditions today. And I get asked this question a lot more, more often than people might think is when students ask me, so, Hey, I, I hear that, you know, there's such thing as continental philosophy. There's such things as analytical philosophy. What is the difference? Right. So two of the most common ways in which people make the distinction is as you kind of pointed to kind of methodology. And then they also point to, to clarity. So I wanted us to kind of talk about these in a little bit more detail. So let's begin first with, with methodology. So you've already referred to kind of the analytic is more of a methodology, but what would you say is the methodology of continental philosophy? Yeah, so I think this is a Im- very important question if we're going to hold on to some concept of continental philosophy at all. Right. And it's also a challenging question because I would say there's no one methodology of continental philosophy. It's rather a set of methodologies. So this would include post-structuralism, feminist theory, phenomenology, hermeneutics, and some historical methods, among others. Because continental is merely a geographic term, it doesn't inherently have any links to methodology. But that said, I do think it's important to mobilize the term continental philosophy, at least in the present moment in order to push back on the marginalization of its various methodologies, as well as the sort of ignorance that a lot of folks have surrounding them, given the way that the education system works. When it comes to talking about an overarching methodology of continental philosophy, I often use the metaphor of grafting. So continental philosophers generally start with the ideas of other philosophers and then build upon them, or they'll combine a couple of different philosophers' ideas, sort of grafting one onto the other. My advisor, Cindy Willett, calls this creative juxtaposition, which I think is a useful term for what a lot of continental philosophers are doing. And so given that, there's a really strong interest among continental philosophers in interpreting texts from the history of philosophy, as well as thinking about their continuing relevance. And I also really like Deleuze and Guattari's notion of concept creation. So they say that Uh, This is a quote from from them, which I absolutely love. It's something like philosophy is the art of forming, inventing and fabricating concepts. Mm. And for them, this concept creation is also historically limited. It takes place within a process of becoming a certain concept is going to be useful for a particular period of time and then be no longer useful. And thinking about philosophy in this way emphasizes that philosophy is an art. And hence, it's not reducible to a mathematical model or a model based on the scientific method. So let's contrast that with analytic philosophy. So if you, if you, if you said that continental philosophy seems to have a kind of a, a, a sets of methodology, would you say the mm-hmm. same thing for analytic philosophy? So I probably would, although I would want to defer to analytic colleagues to talk a <laughs> bit more about that. Good answer. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, can I ask you that or no? No, 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 <laughs> no I mean, I'm, so, so, so here's the thing I'm thinking about as, as you were describing the sets of methodology and continental philosophy, one might say, well, there are some things I can take, I can take from what you just said and apply that to what some analytic philosophers do. 
And perhaps we'll talk about this a, a little bit more, but there are particular historical figures in which both continental and analytic philosophers lean on. So let's think about Kant. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some people who would say, hey, let's, let, um, we're going to do some hermeneutical kind of stuff in, in regards uh, to Kant, try to figure out what he has to say. And that may just be in, in the methodology, maybe similar to what a continental philosopher would do. So, so I'm just trying to figure out, are there some, are there some similarities that are, that, are, that are shared? Are there some stark differences in methodology that is, that is shared? Because analytic philosophy doesn't necessarily look like it once did in the, in the early 20th century. It looks quite different. But there still seems to be a distinction, and a fine line that people make in regards to method. So I, I wonder, how, how do you, you know, how, how do you compare the two in regards to that? Yeah, so I would say if I were to speak broadly about the methodology of analytic philosophy, I would say that analytic philosophy emphasizes rigor and clarity. And based on that, you're going to find that definitions and logical argumentation using a classic premise conclusion model are central to it. When I think, for instance, about teaching Plato, you mentioned Socrates earlier, I would sort of caricature an analytic approach to teaching Plato as one that formalizes the argument by putting the premises and conclusion on the board. And I would caricature a continental approach as one that will emphasize more close reading and an attention to historical context as well as to the literary framing of the dialogue. Ideally, I think when when I teach Plato, I try and do a combination of both. So I think they're quite compatible in that way. And so there certainly are overlaps. I think if if we're not giving any form of argument for ideas, we're just not doing good philosophy. (laughs) So I definitely don't want to throw away argumentation and reasoning. I think it's just a matter of how we're delimiting our scope as philosophers. And I mentioned earlier that I think often about continental philosophy using a metaphor of grafting. When it comes to analytic philosophy, I think a comparable metaphor for me would be that of ground clearing. So analytic philosophy wants to pull out all the weeds and clean up the debris, starting from a firm and stable foundation that is universally communicable. So so let me let me ask you this. (laughs) When you mention putting the premises on the board, I immediately thought to myself, that is exactly what. And I could not imagine entering into a philosophy course in which that is not done. Now, mind you, I've just, just been a minute since I've been into a pluralistic kind of undergrad program in which that w- w- would have taken place. So let me, let me, and you said that you don't want to say that that's not important, but imagine that if I go into a continental uh, philosophy class and that is not being done, let, let, let me not say myself, let me not give myself away. An analytic <laughs> philosopher might think that philosophy in some ways is not really being truly taught, right? So I I wonder if you could, and and this is going to go in some territory that you probably don't really want to go into, but I wonder if you can kind of talk about kind of the, what is the strength of doing that? What is the weakness of doing that? And and try to pick apart, because one of the things I want to kind of hopefully learn from this conversation is that, listen, there are some differences that I didn't know that existed and some additional differences that does exist but I can see how, I can see why, I can see how that's important. And I can see how or why we probably need to tr- change something. So my, my question is simply this, given what you've just described as far as what could take place in a classroom, as far as what a continental philosopher do and what an analytic philosopher, what is the strengths and the weaknesses of that approach? Yeah. So with respect to the analytic approach, a strength is that it's really helpful to clear the ground in order to know what we're talking about. And it's helpful to be able to formalize arguments. 
I think definitions and arguments are crucial components of any communication, especially one that wants to arrive at the truth. So I find analytic philosophy's desire to dig in and get to the bottom of things to be a vital component of philosophical thinking. And I do take this to be similar to Socrates' method of questioning interlocutors by following up with more and more specific questions. I do, however, think there are major dangers to this approach. And if you take Socrates as an example, almost all of the dialogues end in aporia. They don't come up with any conclusions. So what is knowledge? Not sure. (laughs) That type of thing. And so I would be careful about thinking that this is the only or even the best approach for philosophizing. A weakness of it is that analytic philosophy sometimes gets so caught up in ground clearing that it fails to plant anything that will flower. But I actually think of what do you you mean by that? Yeah. So when we're so obsessed with getting our definitions clear to begin with, we may find that we can never get that sufficient clarity and just sort of leave it at that. And so one thing I've heard uh, some folks say in characterizing analytic philosophy is that it is often just insignificant because it the at most what it can tell us is really obvious things that are, you know, sort of permanent, uh, trustworthy, et cetera, but that nobody, that don't actually change anyone's lives. Mm-hmm. I do, I think that is not true of a lot of contemporary analytic philosophy, but I, so I would say that actually a bigger issue for me is that analytic philosophy often underestimates the diversity of intuitions and reasons that people have for things. So one thing I often find, and this is very confusing to me as a continental philosopher, is that analytic philosophers will often use the word intuition, like, oh, well, we all have an intuition about X. (laughs) And that seems so strange to me, because when analytic philosophers accuse continental philosophers of being fuzzy, and uh, like, well, well, what is this intuition thing you all are always talking about? And it seems very unlikely to me that most people have the same intuition. So underlying that reliance on intuition, I think, is often an expectation for a universal or a univocal intuition. And this perpetuates one of the worst problems of philosophy, which is that historically it's been the province of able-bodied, landowning white men who have really similar experiences. So a lot of feminist philosophers, you know, philosophers of race and philosophers of disability have shown that such an approach to truth is not neutral at all. And in fact, hides a very particular kind of subject behind it. So I think that's sort of one danger. And I'm thinking here about a continental paper on Plato that I heard a number of years ago, which started with a really interesting close reading of the fact that the symposium is framed by female flute players playing outside the doors where the men are having a conversation. And this kind of feminist continental close reading take on Plato, forgetting what the thesis was exactly now, but I thought that that was a relevant thing to put in context. We're missing that if we're just focusing on the specificity of the argument. So I would say a major major strength of continental methods is that it allows for a lot of creativity and it also allows for us to really question the concrete underpinnings of the way that philosophy gets made, you know, and it emphasizes as well, just how much incredible work has been done by thinkers over thousands of years. So my training in the history of philosophy has opened me up to so many gems that I otherwise might not have been aware of if I had thought of the history of philosophy as mostly a history of mistakes. So I think continental philosophy, in my view, is a, is a humble and exciting approach in that way. At the same time, you asked also about its weaknesses. There are definitely weaknesses with these methodologies too. 
for one, a lot of continental philosophers can use the respect that they have for the philosophical tradition or the philosophical canon to hide behind what other thinkers have already said before. So it's like, mm-hmm. if Heidegger said it, it's gospel truth. Right. <laughs> so there's a lot of idol worship that goes on in continental philosophy. And for instance, a common type of paper that you might see at a continental conference could be just a recitation of what two or three famous continental philosophers said about X topic. And this type of paper, and you know, I've been guilty of it myself now and again, is not extremely original because it, it maxes out with being able to say that, oh, these ideas can be brought into conversation. Or perhaps there's a somewhat original interpretation of an already famous thinker, but that's not doing that much, right? Philosopher Reiner Sherman said that continental philosophers sometimes behave like journalists in this way. And I would add that that's true. They're often not very good journalists. So I think as much as creative, as much creativity as continental approaches can open up, there's also sometimes a backing away from that and, you know, hiding behind the master thinkers. So let's now turn to, to, to clarity. So, you know, another way in which people may make the distinctions between analytics and continentals, or they would say, they would say analytics are clear and continental philosophers are not. But you, you see an issue with, with, with notions of, of intelligibility and clarity here. And I'm quoting you from a, from a talk. Uh, you note with some exceptions, quote, continental philosophers usually have good reason not to be clear. They aren't unclear because they're lazy. Rather, they're unclear because they've read Hegel, Nietzsche, and Heidegger, and taken into account the fact that language does not simply express ideas, end quote. And you continue. So tell me, what do you, what do you mean by this? Yeah. Yeah. So they have I'll good reasons that... not to be clear. I'm, 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 I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I appreciate the, the healthy skepticism there as well. <laughs> So I think this started for me with getting accused of, you know, by by just virtue of being a continental philosopher, getting accused of sort of talking nonsense or, you know, continental philosophers just speak in gibberish. And don't get me wrong. I've heard some pretty bad papers that (laughs) that do that, um, both in continental and in analytic philosophy. There can be a lot of speaking into the void. But I think there is often an unspoken assumption that clarity is a normative ideal, if not the normative ideal for philosophical thinking. And that is taken for granted in analytic philosophy when it really shouldn't be. The idea of clarity actually involves a lot of metaphysical assumptions. And these are wrapped up in this seemingly obvious norm, which some even would say is not a norm at all. It's just like neutral. Uh, For one, the idea that language as uh, yeah as you mentioned in the quote that language expresses ideas that we've got these ready made statements within our heads and all we need to do is put them down on paper and our interlocutor will be able to automatically pick that up and get the meaning conveyed to them directly this relies on for one a notion that the very ideas we have to begin with can correspond in a direct fashion to an actual state of affairs. That's a huge set of assumptions to make. It's not even just a single assumption. Another one is that we can communicate directly to others without some necessary miscommunication. And a third is that 
there will be some temporal endurance to the truth of a statement. That's not, it doesn't necessarily involve the assumption that what is true at one time will always be true at another time, but it certainly presumes that by the time the thought that I originally had gets to you, you will be able to understand it directly. And if you don't, then I haven't done my job. So a lot of continental philosophers have pressed on this really in the past couple hundred years. I mean, I would, it's possible that historians of philosophy might say that this starts even earlier, but I would say at the very latest, this concern about clarity starts with Kant. Kant stressed that philosophy should not imitate mathematics by starting from a definition. For Kant, definitions emerge from the work and they shouldn't be delivered over in advance. Mm -hmm. And this then develops into what retrospectively is called the continental tradition, starting with German idealism. People like Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel. Here, truth is in a process of becoming. And statements are not true in and of themselves. They are true in relation to other statements. Hmm. So sometimes uh, philosophers will describe this as the difference between a hypotactical model of truth and a paratactical model of truth. The paratactical model is the claim that sentences, th that the truth emerges from the juxtaposition of sentences. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation between a subject predicate sentence and the state of affairs that it aligns with. And the 20th century critical theorist Theodore Adorno calls this into question a lot in his philosophy following Hegel. He's worried about what he calls the fetish of clarity. He actually associates clarity with the rise of capitalism and the idea that we can have sort of a, a clear exchange value of different concepts. And for this, he thinks philosophy takes mathematics as its model, when instead we need to recognize that concepts and existence have disjunctions between them. And there's never going to be a one-to-one -one correlation. And one other thinker to put in the mix here would be Nietzsche, for whom clarity is the sign of a lifeless concept. When philosophy is clear, according to Nietzsche, it can't be generative. It's sort of a choice between one or the other. And he prefers generativity to clarity. What, what do you mean by that? So if you take, for instance, going back to the idea of a definition, the notion that a philosophical paper should begin with defining all of its terms, that is a really useful concept. I teach that to my students. <laughs> I try and hold to that when relevant in my own work. But according to these thinkers, that is a very limiting and misguided way of doing things if we take it to be the only good way of doing things. Because by saying this is what I mean by this word or this concept, we are limiting ourselves from recognizing the way that that concept develops over the course of time, even over the course of a particular paper. So Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, for instance, the part is in the whole and the whole is in the part. <laughs> and we can't just at the very beginning of the work say, this is what I mean by spirit. This is what I mean by notion, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, that meaning is to be picked up over the course of the reading process. And so there's a recognition of the temporal unfolding of concepts that is underestimated by the idea that we can always offer explicit, clear definitions of what we're talking about from the get-go. So, and this is kind of combining a few things that you said about kind of how the way in which analytic philosophers work. So if I'm trying to make an argument, 
And the way in which I do so is by giving out premises with a conclusion. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to make a, an ultimate claim. And it's important in making this particular claim that someone understands what I mean by a particular word in the claim. And without them understanding that word in the claim, they would not be able to understand the claim itself. So in one way, I'm using the, the argument method, as, as you kind of suggested. And in some ways, the way in which I'm trying to define the term uh, or the concept is you would not understand this conclusion without understanding what I mean by it. And so the, prog- the, the, the way in which the paper will flow is in developing the claim itself and not necessarily the concept. But one must understand the concept in order to understand the claim. Would you still do? Do you still find a problem with with still laying the groundwork and understanding that concept in the beginning? Yeah. So as you described it, that sounds great. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think um, keep going with that type of argument. I think that is a really, really important and useful area of philosophical practice. I think my quibble is more with the idea that that is the only way to do philosophy. And there may be some areas of inquiry that are more compatible with that way of philosophizing than others and certain questions that are more compatible than others. So, for instance, Heidegger is really concerned with the way that that type of philosophizing will never be able to deliver over to us a full account of existence as it is, let alone a full account of being as it is. If we say like, by being, I mean X, then we're actually already misguided. And so when I teach continental philosophy, I definitely want to give students the most, the clearest possible definitions for the relevant words. As you said, there are plenty of times when you need to understand what somebody's talking about by a particular word in order to understand their meaning in general. But I think it's just a matter of recognizing that that's not the full scope of philosophy and that we're not getting to the whole story there. Right, right. So some people might be listening to this conversation and they might think that what we have discussed so far can be chalked up to infighting within an academic discipline with no actual implications than the verbal disagreement. But but you don't think so. So I, I want to ask kind of a, a two-part two question here. And the first one is this. What are some problems that you you think the analytic slash continental divide, if you want to call that in general, and what you describe as the marginalization of continental philosophy in particular, have created for people, particularly people on the job market, and also for those who've decided to leave philosophy to enter other disciplines? Yeah. So I think this is a very important question because there are a lot of philosophers today who would think that talking about the continental analytic divide is passe. And this would involve philosophers I would consider on both sides of the debate. So I have a lot of friends trained in analytic philosophy who are like, oh, we love Jean-Paul Sartre. He's great. And a lot of uh, philosophers on the continental side, are like, I'm not even doing continental philosophy. What the hell does that word mean? I'm doing, you know, some sort of form of like feminist philosophy influenced by post-structuralism or whatever it might be. The reason that I think it's important to call attention to the divide is that it still very much exists, as you mentioned, in the job market and in education in general. And so I'm all for overcoming it. But I think we need to strategically mobilize the division for the time being in order to overcome the problems that it gives rise to. From the continental side, it gives rise to huge problems. So There's been um, McCumber talks in in his book, Time in the Ditch, about how continental philosophers are actually in the greatest oversupply of any other kind of philosophers on the job market. And so that means that it's especially challenging for us to get jobs 
in a market where, which is already horrible for anyone in philosophy <laughs> to begin with. And since he wrote that book 10 years ago, one of the trends that I've actually increasingly noticed is that even the continental jobs are more and more frequently going to people who are trained in analytic departments. And if we weren't in a situation where it was so hyper competitive, that wouldn't be an issue. But think about this for a moment. This is something that's very much been on my mind as I've been in the job market in the past few years. When I look at a job posting, unless it explicitly says continental philosophy, they're usually implicitly not looking for continental. So I have applied to jobs, for instance, in ethics, for jobs in metaphysics, for jobs in social and political philosophy, because from a a certain vantage point, I work in all of those areas and would be able to teach them. However, what the, the subtext of most of these postings is, is that we're looking for analytic feminist philosophy, or we're looking for analytic ethics. And That is one unspoken rule of the job market. So if continental philosophers are already severely limited in our job postings, often the number of continental philosophy jobs listed in a given year will be five to 10. If we're already limited by that, and even some of those jobs are going to folks who've trained in traditionally analytic departments, then we're getting like two jobs a year. Those of us who are coming, you know, those of us who are coming out of, of these graduate programs. So that is a major issue here. And then you also mentioned a lot of folks having to to leave and go into other departments. This is very common and has been common for a number of decades. So folks who are trained in continental philosophy will often find themselves getting jobs in women's and gender studies departments, in ethnic studies programs of various types, in languages programs, in comparative literature, in religion. And I think while I'm all for interdisciplinarity, I think a lot of those folks have felt pushed out from philosophy and that has further narrowed what we tend to think about as philosophy. So I want to I want to kind of ask two questions in references to your to, to your two answers. And, and the first question is going to go back to the, the first response. So some people might say, well, what do you mean that the analytics are taking the continental jobs? So I want you to be a little bit more explicit in exactly in exactly what you mean, because I know you've, you've talked before about there's certain kinds of postings and kind of traditionally. So, so just go into a little bit more detail just to make that more clear about kind of what's going on in that, that domain. Yeah. So traditionally, graduate programs in philosophy will emphasize analytic philosophy or continental philosophy. This is not, a tr- not true across the board entirely. There are some genuinely pluralist programs. But usually, if a program is well known, it's well known either as an analytic program or as a continental program. And So for instance, I went to graduate school at Emory, which is a well-known continental program. There are folks who are interested in non-continental forms of philosophy there, but they know what they're getting into, getting into that program. So once we all get on the job market, those of us who are coming from uh, prestigious programs will get slotted, you know, into into different categories for uh, different jobs. And what's been happening increasingly is that the continental jobs have tended to go to folks, and this is definitely not always the case, but there have been a number of of cases of this, especially recently. The continental jobs have tended to go to folks who come from prestigious analytic programs, but who happen to have written their dissertation on one or more continental figures. 
And um, that in and of itself is great. Like, why not write a dissertation about a traditionally continental figure from an analytic program? So I have no problem with that kind of work. I do think that given the social and political climate we're living in within philosophy, that is very dangerous because it is furthering the marginalization of continental philosophy to such an extent that continental philosophy as a set of methods is at risk of dying out. And and you you say, and, and I, I kind of know exactly what you mean, but I want you to be a little bit more clear <laughs> about uh, some people being feeling like they're being pushed out of philosophy to go into other other disciplines. And I want you to explain how, how exactly is the Is it the case that their work is not being respected. Is it the case that there seems to be just no jobs because of given what you just you just previously said? Is it that they want to be more free in, in their own methodology and it's not really working with philosophy? What is what is causing philosophers, people with PhDs in philosophy, uh, to have to work in other disciplines? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it's a combination of the factors that you mentioned. I do think one thing I see in general is that continental philosophers on the job market within philosophy are expected to translate their work into analytic idioms in order to be legible at all. And when they can't do that, they're charged with, you know, talking nonsense. And so that I think has negative impacts on both sides. It allows folks who are making the hiring decisions to persist in thinking like, oh, this kind of philosophy makes no sense. And it also makes continental philosophers feel unwelcome within their own discipline. And I think it's telling that the continuing existence of this divide is often not extremely salient to folks until they go on the job market. Because within the space of graduate schools, we get to sort of be in a bubble and not realize just how much these distinctions continue to manifest in the profession. So I would say that some who leave continental philosophy are delighted, or sorry, some some who are trained in continental philosophy who leave philosophy to go into other disciplines are delighted to do so precisely because they're not forced to translate into an idiom in order to be intelligible to other folks in the profession. Mm -hmm. And they do find that freedom that you talked about. At the same time, I know a lot of people who mourn that loss of leaving philosophy because they've been trained to teach Plato and Aquinas and Hume and find themselves in settings in which they're actually working with an entirely different set of of texts and influences than they were trained for. We've been talking about kind of what problems this kind of poses for for the job market and and philosophers in general, but you also think that uh, there are some additional problems that this creates for philosophy and also thinking. So how is that the case? Yeah. So it follows from a lot of what we've said up to this point, namely the importance of a diversity of approaches is often underplayed when we are taking one idiom to be central. So the funny thing is about continental philosophy is that once we sort of unpack the term a little bit, as I said earlier, it has all of these different methodologies. It also has a ton of different schools within it. And so, you know, somebody trained in hermeneutics is perhaps going to have very, very little to do with somebody who's trained in a Foucauldian paradigm. Although Foucault himself probably wouldn't really like that term Foucauldian (laughs) paradigm, but we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. And so I think what happens is that we've got this entire extremely diverse range, range of approaches that are grouped within one particular name. 
And then another set of approaches that are frankly less diverse, um, although still really important, that are kind of taking over that territory in general. And I think that that doesn't do anyone any favors. And this is one of those things where I think a lot of the people who actually felt like really angry and had a lot of resentment about the about, you know, continental philosophy from the analytic side or about analytic philosophy from the continental side are no longer around. Like a lot of young continental philosophers love learning about analytic philosophy and wish they had learned more of it in grad school. And a lot of young analytic philosophers love continental philosophy and wish they'd learned more about it in graduate school as well. And so it's not a case of individual bad actors. It's more a structural project, a problem with the system, right? So this structural problem within the system is that we just aren't, we're almost living in different disciplines, given the difference of our graduate training. And um, there's this great uh, Bernard Williams quote, where he talks about how dividing analytic and continental philosophy is like dividing cars into four wheel drive and (laughs) made in Japan. So it's We've got four wheel drive is analytic philosophy and made in Japan is continental philosophy. That just doesn't make any right. sense of distinction. Right. So that's the that's the philosophy end. So for those who, who, who are not philosophers and just wondering what kind of implications this has or problems this creates just for thinking in general. Can you elaborate on that? Definitely. I think one major problem here is that the overemphasis of one particular set of methods in philosophy contributes to the obsession with science and mathematics as the only hardcore disciplines that we see in general with university systems, education, and culture at large within the United States today. So if it's right to say, very broadly speaking, that continental philosophy tends to be more similar to artistic methods from the humanities, and that analytic philosophy tends to be more similar to mathematical and scientific methods, if that also maps on to a valorization of analytic philosophy over continental philosophy, that we're just reproducing the very problem that is leading to philosophy's marginalization within culture at large, because we are, we are pandering to the idea that thinking is only good when it's mathematically rigorous. Right, right. It's kind of like the, the whole debate between the humanities and the sciences. Exactly. And, yeah. Okay. Okay. So here's a tough question. And, and, and you, you, you've, you have implicitly already responded to this, to this question. But what can we do about it? What can we, particularly a new generation who's not so much connect, uh, I guess, you know, had these beefs, quote unquote, or are really, uh, you know, have a very different mindset, uh, who is open to, 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 to learning about analytic of their continent and vice versa. What can we do in response to these, to these problems? Definitely. Such an important question. I would say following from what we said about the job market earlier, I think hiring people from continentally trained programs is important, especially being open to the idea that just because somebody's work isn't immediately legible to you, uh, it may still have some important philosophical contribution to make. And again, this isn't a case of individual bad actors, but more a structural issue. I would also say changing the editorial boards of certain journals and committees is crucial. I know the APA has been receiving a lot of push from continental philosophers who feel like that, yeah, the American Philosophical Association has yeah, been getting pushback from philosophers who feel that we as continentally trained folks just aren't getting recognized 
in APA conferences, our papers aren't getting accepted because there aren't people who can speak to the originality of our work on the committees. So I know that the APA has recently added some more continentally trained philosophers to its committee. I think that's important. Uh, and along with that, I think, yeah, journal editorial boards would be important too. And that's not to say that there aren't always going to be different journals and conferences that specialize in different areas of philosophy. But when it comes to really mainstream things like the American Philosophical Association, it's especially important to have a diversity of approaches there. I would also say that more graduate courses involving continental texts is good. And this could also already be built into certain prestigious graduate programs that aren't known for continental philosophy because prestigious graduate programs tend to be at large universities, many of which have excellent continental philosophers in other disciplines besides philosophy. And I feel really lucky to have been trained at Emory for this because Emory is an unusual place in as much as it has a great continental PhD program, but it also has really great continental philosophy in the comparative literature department, in the French department, in the women's and gender studies department, in the religion department. And so we had a very interdisciplinary dialogue there that I think could be of benefit to my friends who are still in graduate school in prestigious analytic departments who don't really have a lot of access to learning about continental philosophy, but who would like to. And in addition to that, I would say this is a little bit less nuts and bolts. Actually, one last nuts and bolts thing too would be citation practices. Right, right. <laughs> when it to journals, uh, trying to cite. I do my best in a lot of my work to try and cite both analytic and continental philosophers. And I think that that could be a two-way dialogue. And yeah, so a little bit more abstractly, but still in terms of a two-way dialogue, I think that we can all aim for a more genuinely bilateral dialogue than we have previously had, because I love talking to colleagues in analytic philosophy. I've had such great moments of insight through working with them. And one of the amazing benefits of having now transitioned in the past few years from being a grad student to being a professor is that I'm usually the only continental person at my institution. And so I've gotten to learn so much from analytic colleagues. And I also think that often analytic folks want to really be able to learn from continental colleagues and they have, they struggle to understand the idioms in which we speak. And so I think I, I don't know exactly how this works for those of us who are already out of graduate school, but I do think it's important to provide these modes of translating from one idiom to the other on both sides, rather than just unilaterally expecting that of continental philosophers. And this might just include a sort of carefulness around ch charging continental philosophers with nonsense and gibberish, right? Like giving them a moment of, you know, to, to unpack what they're saying and just being a little bit humbler about that rather than saying that doesn't make sense to me. This would also encourage both analytic philosophers and, and continental philosophers to read each other's work more. And I would say that this would ultimately really help continental philosophy as well, because I'm very concerned about the way that continental philosophers sometimes engage in this kind of idol worship. And I think we can do bolder and better work. And that may often involve subjecting our work to more logical argumentation when it's relevant. So I do think that that, that would ultimately help both sides and encourage us to do better and be better. If you could co-author a paper with a continental philosopher, quote unquote, continental philosopher who is no longer alive, who would it be? And what would be the title of the paper? Okay. 
Wow. So this is a tough one because a lot of the continental philosophers who are now dead were pretty weird guys. (laughs) And I say guys on purpose because they're mostly men and they're pretty sexist too. So because of that, they might not want to co-author a paper. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They're lost. (laughs) So, man, the title, that's how, so I, I have someone in mind. Okay. Um, I think I would say Pleshat Diarmit. She wrote a wonderful book on narcissism in 2013 uh, and was a professor at the University of Memphis who died suddenly just a few years ago. Wow. And yeah, she, she was doing really, really interesting work on uh, rethinking narcissism, combining psychoanalytic frameworks and frameworks from post-structuralism and feminist theory. And I came across her work in graduate school, and she was the only other person in continental philosophy who was working on the concept of selfhood, but using the work of Jacques Derrida, who's like not at all an evident figure for the concept of selfhood. Mm-hmm. And so I learned so much from that book, and I would love to have had the opportunity to write something with her. In terms of the title of our paper, <laughs> uh, it, it would be something about the impossible value of self-love, like some yeah. good juicy title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. 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 So Ellie, you are well-traveled. What's your favorite place to travel outside of the U.S.? Okay. So... As a scholar of French philosophy after World War II, <laughs> there, there's I, knew, only... I knew I knew you were going to say this. Go ahead. Yeah, I just I can't not say Paris. This like... is so stereoty- Look, this is so so, so the stereotypical <laughs> answer for a continental philosopher. It's it's, it's, it's so stereotypical. Paris, of course. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry, but it's true. Paris, it's a home away from home for me, and. It's a kind of place where philosophers are public intellectuals who have a real impact on culture. And I just love, you know, being able to meet somebody at a bar and them ask me what I do. And I say I'm a philosopher. And that's a conversation starter rather than a conversation ender. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but I also I, I usually tack on to to my archival trips and research trips to France. I usually tack on some fun beach vacations too, because as a California girl, I love the beach. So I would say also anywhere along the Adriatic Sea, just those clear sapphire waters, Italy, Croatia, oh, dream. Okay. So let's, let's, let's stick with stereotypes. So I'm new to the West Coast, but you're from Los Angeles and you now have the opportunity to build an academic life in Southern California as an assistant professor at Pomona. So, but before I moved here, I had stereotypes of West Coast people. And some of those stereotypes, because of experience, they have been disproven, but also I have also created new stereotypes. <laughs> what would you say are two stereotypes of L.A. folks that you believe that you embody? And then I want you to convince me that they are actually virtues. <laughs> I'm so curious about your stereotypes of California people. Too. So if we have time for that, I want to hear that. Okay. So. I think the major stereotype, one that I've thought about a lot over the course of my life that definitely holds is a somewhat naive and affirmative curiosity. I think people from California, especially from Southern California and Los Angeles in particular, tend to be very open to new ideas. And this can definitely be a bad thing. So I have a lot of, I have a lot of 
friends who are into random new agey ideas that I don't think holds water. <laughs> and people can be taken in very easily by new shiny ideas without having a lot of discernment around them. But I think the positive side of this is that there's a real absence of jadedness and cynicism with respect to ideas here. People are excited and joyful about learning and they're humble in admitting how much they don't know. A second one is an interest in appearance. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I think people from LA definitely have the stereotype for, you know, stereotype of being superficial. And as much as at growing up here, I was like, I thought of myself as a budding intellectual who didn't have those dimensions. I'm pretty into personal style and fashion. So I would say that that, that holds true, you know, it holds true to that extent. But I do have a friend, Amy Zimmer, who's working on the philosophy of fashion. And she argues that the surface of the body and the way that we clothe ourselves is an important dimension for philosophy to investigate and one that has traditionally been disavowed for illegitimate reasons. So I'm going to go ahead and say that that's a, ultimately a philosophical interest. Okay. Okay. So, so here's real, real quick, quick stereotypes that I've had of, of, of yes, Los Angeles please. people. Um, so, so I think everybody knows the stereotype. I mean, there's a, I mean, coming from the East coast, there was a stereotype that you guys are very, very laid back. And that has been, that has been totally proven. I think mm. a new one uh, that I kind of, I don't know if it's so new or novel, but uh, what I've learned and what I've have generalized as far as uh, Southern California folks, not only are you laid back, you are extremely slow. Like <laughs> if, if I was to look up slow in like Wikipedia, like the, 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 the state of California would be, you know, like the prime example of like slowness. <laughs> I think another thing that's kind of connected, I guess, a new stereotype is uh, as, as beautiful as it is outside. I just want to know where is everybody? Like, <laughs> so, so like, yes, it's so beautiful. But like the, the, the stereotype that I have, of like, like, but you don't come outside like enough. So I'm just yep. used to seeing populated like people outside. And the fact that I don't really see lots of people outside, like massive amounts of people as like New York or Boston. It's just a weird yeah. phenomenon given how beautiful it is. I mean, you guys are at the beach and like the pier and all that stuff. But when I expect to see lots of people outside, I don't. And it mm-hmm. makes me look at you guys very weird. So what's up with that? <laughs> what's up with that? I, know, I, you guys I, I think a lot of that has to do with the car culture and the sort of suburban culture that we have here. Like even L.A., I think it was Diane Keaton who said that L.A. was a suburb. It was 72 suburbs in search of a city. And it's so true. I mean, I find when I go to New York, I see more people I know on the street than (laughs) when I'm in LA, even though I have spent, you know, well over half my life here. So yeah, I, I would attribute that maybe to the car culture. Maybe also we just take advantage of how nice it does all the time. So we're not, you know, jumping outside (laughs) (laughs) the moment it's nice. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. Um, but that's why you think it's slow. I'm forgetting if you've lived in the South. I, I lived, I, I was, I was raised in Norfolk, Virginia. And then I slowly, okay. slowly started moving more and more, more upward towards um, Northeast. But it's, it's extremely, I mean, I, I imagine if I was to go back to Virginia, which has been several years, I may say the same thing. But I think the yeah. stere- here's a stereotype. We, it's usually, it's a contrast. It's like New York and then Los Angeles is like, the <laughs> contrast, right? So, but like just the sunny contrast. And then moving here, I yeah. realized, no, it ain't. <laughs> and I just want to apologize for all my West Coast people out here. This is just the East Coast confession. 
I expected <laughs> more busyness, more crowdiness, because I just thought it was a sunny, a sunny New York. And that's yeah. not the case. Um, no. but, but as far as slow, I think, um, and it could just be like a New York thing, like because there's lots of people, like it, it, in order for things to run efficient, it has to run at a certain kind of pace. So mm-hmm. you, you, you have to walk fast. You have to get in out of the subway. Like, because so many people, like you're competing with so many people. And I think uh, the transition from being here in Southern California, I mean, you guys are not so much in a rush. And I haven't caught up with that kind of pace. So even going to the movie I theater and having to wait 15 minutes for popcorn. Like, what is happening <laughs> here? Even when I'm driving and I'm on my phone at a stoplight, and people are really not blowing their horn at all. Like, I, I don't understand. I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. I respect it, some parts of it, but I don't. I get that. Yeah, it's like both New York and L.A. are made up of hustlers and dreamers, but New York <laughs> emphasizes the hustle and L.A. emphasizes <laughs> right, the dream. Right, right. I like that. I like that. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. Me too, Maisha. I really appreciate, yeah, your perspective on LA and, and your excellent <laughs> questions. So I, I can't tell you what a delight it is to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. I think what you do is such a service to the profession. I have so much respect for you and just, yeah, can't wait to see how this new season turns out and to tune in myself. You're so kind. You're so kind. Thank you so much for lending your expertise. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.